Welcome to Kingdom Perspective Broadcast, the teaching ministry of Dr. David Ogaga. We believe that this message is going to open up the seals and cause you to have a deeper revelation into the Word of God that will make you see beyond the letters in the Word. Here is Dr. David. Let me even share a thought of uh, a minister of God who was actually speaking on this subject, and this is what the man had to say. Did you know that there is a sin so great, so devastating in his awfulness that even the great mercy of God cannot overlook it and the shed blood of Jesus Christ cannot wash it away? One further to say, a sin that can never be forgiven, an unpardonable sin. This is a dreadful sin that will cause you to lose all hope of forgiveness and salvation to suffer forever the damnation of hellfire. This, my friend, is a faith that is worse than death itself. Here is the description this minister of God gave to this particular uh, topic or word, which is called the unpardonable sin. So I will see it as a doctrine. Right, but what exactly is the unpardonable sin? This unpardonable sin that is so awful and described by this pastor that when you commit, you come to the place where you, the only fate awaiting you is the damnation of hair fire forever and ever because you committed this particular sin. And he talks about the sin such that this is a sin that the blood of Jesus cannot wash away. He described it as a, the, the sin that God Mercy cannot even behold. What is this sin? How does this sin affect your faith? And these are some of the things we're going to be looking at. How do you commit the unpardonable sin? I mean, what do you do to commit that which is called the unpardonable sin? Um, if it is unpardonable, is it that, or are we now intending to say that? Nothing can be done about it. So by implication, you are now to spend the rest of your life in hell. Is that what it really means when we talk about the issue of unpardonable sin? Do we mean to say that there is sin that the blood of Jesus cannot erase? Hallelujah. If Jesus died for all, if he died for mankind... And to wash our sins away. I mean, is there any sin that the blood of Jesus cannot really wash away? And just like this minister will say, that this unpardonable sin, the blood of Jesus can't wash it away. What then is the unpardonable sin? I'm going to be using three major passages uh, that people commonly use on this particular topic. And then we're going to discuss them. Bit by bit, so I'm laying foundation until we go down to the main text when Jesus talks about the issue of the unpardonable sin in the book of Matthew, chapter 12 and Mark, chapter 3. But before we go there, we're going to deal with 1 John, chapter 5, verse 16. 1 John, chapter 5, verse 16. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he should pray for it. Now, if you look at this scripture, it simply means there is a sin unto death, and one not unto death. Right? Okay. The sin unto death, and then another one, the sin not unto death. So what is the sin unto death in this context? People have found it very difficult to actually explain what this passage is talking about. As we are when it comes to that very usage of the word, the sin unto death. Part of which we are not dealing with, that anybody can commit. But remember, he says something here. There is a sin you commit, and somebody prays for you, and you are giving life. In other words, he obtains life for you. But this 
the same not unto death. You know, look at it very well. It said, If any man seeing his brother seeing a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them. He shall give him life for them. That means you see a sin which is not unto death, somebody can pray, and God gives life through that prayer to you. In other words, that individual is obtaining life for you because you see the sin not unto death. And then that again tells us something that we have to be watchful. It's like using the word being your brother's keeper. Are you done with me? If you see your brother, that means you must see. Because there's no way you're going to pray where you don't see and where you have not seen. So, how watchful are we? <laughs> and again, I tell you something. Your brother's sin doesn't mean condemn him. He said, if you see your brother's sin, a sin which is not unto death, pray. He didn't say judge him. He didn't say condemn him. He didn't send him, send him to hell or hand him over to the devil or whatever the case may be. Why? But he said, you pray. And then he gives you life for such people. Praise the living God. Now, the point actually is, the Jewish laws that they were operating on, they are two, I will use the word dichotomy. They were saying that we're unto death. When you commit such things, you are qualified to be stoned to death. Sins like idolatry, incense, blasphemy, no violating the Sabbath day, you are stoned to death. So it's a sin unto death. The Jews observed that. But there are also sins that does not lead to stoning to death, which is like the sin of ignorance. Right? Ignorance and sin of omission and stuff like that. But the sin unto death is the sin that qualifies you to be stoned to death. Are you still see what, see what I'm talking about? Especially the sin of blasphemy. Why? I think in John chapter 8, they wanted to stone Jesus to death, but because he said he was the Son of God. So therefore, he blasphemed, and so he was qualified to be stoned to death. Are you following what I'm saying? Right. So it's a sin unto death. All right. Now, Again, if you look at your society, there are laws in your society that we automatically are referred to as laws that fall into what is called capital punishment. If you, you commit certain crimes and then you take into court, the judge can sentence you to death. Right? Okay, I know we have forgotten the name of that person now who sang a song at the night and um, they said he blasphemed, is it the Quran or Muhammad or something like that, Islam? And now the Sharia court sentenced him to death. He's awaiting death now. People are talking all over the world. You know, so it's like a sin unto death, which is sin of blasphemy. So even in this society, you have such things. I'm sure we still have it uh, in a way, relatively, that uh, murder is still capital punishment. So it's a sin unto death. I don't know if you are getting this right. So all of these things are sin unto death. But we also do know that. If you, for instance, you have uh, a lawyer who can stand for you to defend you, to give reasons and causes why you should not be killed, it's possible that the chief judge can commute such punishment from, instead of capital punishment, to something else. Maybe long years of imprisonment and whatever the case may be. So now, whoever standing for you in that instance, it's like the man that sees you commit a sin and is praying for you. You follow it? Therefore, it stands, sin not unto death. Let's look at Galatians 6, verse number 1. Galatians 6, verse number 1. But if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, let thy also be what? Tempted. So here, okay, look at verse 2. Bear ye one another's burden, and so do what? Fulfill the law of Christ. 
Bear ye one another's burdens. So here is a sin that is not unto death. You pray for that individual. The man is set free. Are you getting what I'm saying now? Just a simple illustration of sin that is not unto death. By implication, if a man commits a sin which is not unto death, you can intercede. The person can be restored from that situation. Hallelujah. But again, like the question that came to us when we are having this question and answer forum. Um, let's quickly go now to... Now in this instant you see that this man is restored because you prayed. Is that okay? He sinned, but you are spiritual, you pray that the sinner is restored. And we pray for them with the assurance that they will be restored. As a matter of fact, we have that conviction that they can be restored and, and they, they, they should be restored when we pray for them. So that is Galatians 6. That is a sin that is not on to death. Is that okay? Right. Okay. Let's look at another passage in relation to this first general we're talking about. Another passage which is Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. It says, um, let me just see. So Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 it says, For it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and we may partake us of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the word of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they should fall away. To renew them again unto repentance, seeing the crucified to themselves, the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. So here is another passage that um, ministers use, uh, some of us use, to teach the issue of sin on to death. Nothing can be done about it. Alright? Okay. So again, now we begin to see here that the sin unto death. From the way it is interpreted, means the transgression of particularly grievous backsliding from the life and powers of godliness, which God determines to punish with temporal death, while at the same time He extends mercy to the penitent soul. If you want to look at it, the repentant soul. God does that. Hallelujah. Now, but now the point again is this. For instance, we have uh, the issue of the prophet in First Kings chapter 13. Well, long story, we're not going to go into that. Do you remember the old prophet and the young prophet? Right. God personally said, is that okay? Fine. Now, because the prophet disobeyed, he died. But that is not to say the prophet does not have any further relationship or God does not have mercy on the soul of that prophet because he died on the way. No. I don't know if you're getting this. Good. So, this is a transgression, but that is not to say the person is completely excluded. No. God still said this prophet as his own prophet, but he died. In other words, the physical body was punished, but his soul is still with the Lord. Did you get that? Right. So I want us to get this. Okay. But, like people keep saying, and like we can say from the scriptures, as we're going to see, the sin unto death actually should be understood in relation to apostasy from Christianity. Reading that Hebrew chapter 6, you know, from the Christian religion into idolatry. Because you see, if we go back to 1 John chapter 5, let's look at 19 to 20. 1 John chapter 5, 19 to 20, then we'll come back here. And we know that we have God and the whole world light in wickedness. And the next thing says, And we know that the Son of God is come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Is that okay? We know Him. This is the true God and eternal life. So what's the next verse? Verse 21 says, Little children, keep yourself from what? Idolatry. 
Did you get that? So now the whole of the passage is ending up with one particular instruction. Keep yourself from idolatry. Now, the implication of this is this. The man that leads Christianity into idolatry ultimately has no way of redemption in contest. That's what he's trying to discuss. Is that okay? Praise the living God. But there's something I'm going to make you see here. I don't want to jump the gun. As we continue with this discourse, you'll be able to see it. Because the scripture tells us that the believer, except he was not a believer before, except he was not a believer, except he never had the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible says your spirit is sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, when something is sealed, it's packaged. Nothing can break it. Is that okay? Nothing can break it. That is the point I want you to understand from the onset. All of these things I'm giving to you at this foundation is for you to see how this particular passage has been interpreted and how this particular subject has been treated. Praise the Lord. Are we still here? Uh, I remember Karl Marx. You know, communism. Kamas father was a Christian. He was a believer, as a matter of fact. Until you come into contact with all of this uh, socialism and all of those things. And he spoke to his father one day. And he said, oh dad, the curtain has fallen. When he used that word, what he was trying to say was, the curtain in the most holy place has been closed. So, he doesn't have access anymore. To the most holy place. In other words, no fellowship with God. And then he went into headlong into communism. But when he was to die, his eyes got open again to the reality of the saving grace of God. You see what I mean? Once the spirit is sealed, your spirit is sealed. There is nothing. You can't, yes, nothing. You can fool around, but <laughs> When you are about transitioning, how many of you remember somebody like Tai Solarin in this country, Mayflower, you know, Kenya, right? The founder of Mayflower, you know, you know, socialism and all that. When he was to die, he called on God. But before he died, he said, There's nothing like God, because it was socialism. But the very time he was passing on, because you see, when you enter the realm of the divide, what I mean now is you passing on to the other side, <laughs> you will know that all of your foolishness in the natural is gone. Because then you are beholding something completely different, completely deeper than your natural work. Your senses are no longer functioning. Then your spirit is really coming alive. And so, this man, he confessed. Jesus Christ before he died. But for all of his days, I'm talking of Tyus Olaram, he never once accepted that there is God. I think he's schooled in uh, Russia, wherever. Communism. Alright. So we'll go back to that Hebrew chapter 6. So here is the point. We are saying here, you move away from Christianity into idolatry, it comes to the point looking like maybe there's nothing that can be done for you anymore. I'm saying this is what people use to teach the unpardonable sin. Is that okay? Okay. Um, what I got to say here again. Right. Again, we have that which is called the sin against the Holy Ghost. Just like this. You move away from Christianity, then you begin to sin against the Holy Spirit. And I will interpret that more when we get to that particular section. So it comes to the same vein, the same perspective. Well, what is that saying about a renouncing of Christianity, even if you speak against the Holy Spirit? You're renouncing Christianity? You go into idolatry, idol worship? You're renouncing Christianity? But now in the case of this Hebrew, you actually deny the truth of the Christian faith. After understanding has come to you, after illumination has come to you, you know, even after you face some persecutions, whatever the case may be, but now you come to a place and begin to feel that it's not like Christianity. So this is exactly what Hebrews 6 is trying to describe to us. So you look at the first time it says, verse 4, For it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, 
Now I'm going to make you see what it means here. You say, Pastor, but that's the truth then. For those who have been enlightened and they get into darkness, therefore there is no hope for them. Because the scripture here says, for it's impossible. Then we're going to look at why is it impossible and what is it really possible. Hallelujah. When they say, I've tasted of the heavenly gift, and we may partake us of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him toward an open shame. Now, the first thing I want you to see here is this. The book of Hebrews was written in AD 63, between AD 63 and 67. Right? And it was a book written to the Hebrew Christian believers. It was addressed to Hebrew converts. That's why I call the book of Hebrews. It was addressed to Hebrew converts. Alright. So here, Paul is trying to address his people who have tasted this good word of God. Now, it simply means this. This address does not really belong or applicable, if you will, to backsliders of any kind. You say, Pastor David, this is confusing. He's talking about backsliders. Just hold on for a while. Hallelujah. You see, there's a level of backsliding you can get into. Your spirit is still pulsating. When I say this, your thought is still with the Lord. No matter what happens, you are still with the Lord. This is beyond the issue of backsliding. We are talking about a people who have come to us. I'm going to make you see that. We've come to the conclusion that Jesus was, how do I put it now, an imposter. They've come to the conclusion that, look, the day that Jesus died was right. He was qualified to die because he was an imposter. He claimed to be who he was not. This is the kind of people we're talking about. So we're not just talking about backsliders who just, no, 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 no. We're talking of those who have come into, in, in terms which, in fact, they would rather say, if I were alive when they were to kill him, I would have been there to kill him. This is the kind of people we're talking about. <laughs> You see what I'm saying? That's why I'm talking about crucifying him afresh in the flesh. So they belong to the apostate from Christianity, if you will, to such a reject the whole of Christian system and its altar, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a complete rejection of that which is called Christianity and the practice. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, they just rejected. Like I said, they've come to join to blaspheme. I mean, like the Jewish people who would have said Jesus was not the Messiah. They've come to that conclusion. They're joining terms with those people to say Jesus was not the Messiah. He's an imposter. You understand that? So this is not just the issue of backsliding from church. Men will come to... Uh, if I have seen his mother was justified. Praise the living God. That was a male factor, if you will, and thus that kind of attitude and talk is the height of blasphemy, if I may use the word. Remember again when we're going to get there. That's why I was saying this subject is so delicate that a lot of people find it difficult to, I mean, it's not easy to interpret. Because guess what? Even when Jesus said this, I mean, the scripture says this, and we're looking at what is happening here. These are men who have actually agreed to say Jesus is an imposter. But remember what he said, that's blasphemy against the Son. But Jesus said, if you sin against the Son, you shall be forgiven. So, <laughs> are you getting what I'm saying now? Very good. He said that in Matthew 12, we're going to get there, ultimately. But yet, in Matthew 12, he said, if you sin against the Son, you shall be forgiven. If you sin against the Father, but if you sin against the Holy Ghost, you see that? So even when you say Jesus was an imposter, you can still be forgiven in His own language. 
I don't know if you're getting this now. Good. But we are looking at the people, the Jewish set of people, who said Jesus was the father, Jesus was the murderer, Jesus was qualified to be killed. In fact, if it was possible, they would stand to say, let's crucify him. But Jesus said, even if you do that and say that against the Son of Man, you shall be forgiven. So do we really have, um, any, I mean, an unpardonable sin so far? You see, you'll be able to see that. When we get down to where he starts talking about this, in Matthew 12 and Mark 3, you'll get one strong statement later that I will make you see. The scripture tells us, no man can call upon the name of the Lord except by what? The Holy Spirit. That's the main thing. That's the main thing. So, it's a rejection ultimately of the Holy Spirit that is what is called what? Unpardonable sin. The rejection of the Holy Spirit. Because you can't come to Jesus without the Holy Spirit. You can't come to God without the Holy Spirit. So if you reject the Holy Spirit, there's no way you can come to God or get saved. Anyway, let's just make it and take it easy so that we'll break it down bit by bit. Hallelujah. So yeah, we are people who are willfully, maliciously rejecting the Lord that bought them. The Hebrews, the Jewish people. No man believing in the Lord Jesus as a great sacrifice for sin. They never want to believe that anymore. And acknowledging Christianity as a divine revelation. Right? This is the group of people that Paul was writing about. They've, they've denounced Christianity. They've denounced the Lord above them with the price. They don't want to have anything to do with that Christianity. And to them, if Jesus were to be alive, they would literally want to kill him. Hallelujah. So, this is a level of degree from the way people teach it of backsliding that has gone beyond the level of salvation. It's like you can no longer salvage these people. Praise the living God. Are we there? Now, when you look at the world, those were once enlightened. I think the verse number four. For it's impossible for those who were once enlightened. What I mean is those who are thoroughly instructed in the nature and the scope of Christianity or the Christian religion who have received the knowledge of the truth. If you forsake that, that's what he's dealing with now. Is that okay? Right. If you forsake that, now, give me Hebrews chapter 10 verse 32. And then we'll come back here. Hebrews 10 32. But call to remembrance the former days in the which after you were illuminated, you enjoy a great fight of what? Affliction. That word illuminated means you receive knowledge of the things of the Lord. The things of Christianity, the things of the faith. They were fully impacted unto you when you were fully illuminated. Praise the living God. Are we here? So that's what it means in the beginning. In Hebrew chapter 6 verse 4. When you were enlightened, that is, when you were illuminated, when you got the light, you know, all right, that light that brings that conviction, as it were, by the power of the Holy Spirit of sin and righteousness and of judgment, and led to Jesus, the Savior of all sinners. Can we take a look at John 16, and let's look at verse um, 8 to 10. I just show you something there. Hallelujah. Good. Okay, go back a little bit. Let's take it from verse number 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if, it, if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now, this is another strong and critical statement made by Jesus, which people never, never want to accept or believe. If you take this from the other translation, what will make you see is this. It's important, advantageous for you. Can we take it from the 
Amplified Translation. However, I'm telling you nothing but the truth when I say it is profitable, good, expedient, advantageous for you that I go away. Because if I do not go away, the comforter, was that? Counselor, helper, advocate, intercessor, straightener, step, I mean, the standby will not come to you in close fellowship with you. But if I go away, I will send him to you to be in close fellowship with you. Now, you get this, because we're going to read down somewhere and you're going to see that. What is this supposed to mean? Meaning, if you have Jesus the way he was, as a physical being, the Holy Spirit gets back into him. You lose the advantage of having the Holy Spirit. Does it make sense? Yeah. <laughs> Listen to this. You know when the disciples were all with him, none of them was operating on the gift of the Holy Spirit. Even healings, except he asked them to go. When he sent them forth, they would do something. But if they try to do it without his sending them, they can't perform. Remember there was a young man, I mean a child, that they wanted to pray for, they couldn't, you know. And Jesus came and said, took this to your, your disciples, they could do nothing. Jesus said, oh, you may have little faith. You know, how long am I going to be with you? Remember that? Right. And then he made a statement, this stop coming, or I said, my fasting and prayers. Why? Because he never sent them to do that. But you go to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 9, when he asked them to go, they came back to say, even the devil was subject unto us. Can you get a difference? Right now, but now, he is saying, as long as I'm with you, you can function with the power of the Holy Spirit. So when I leave, the Holy Spirit will come as me in another form. In that context, you are not going to be waiting for me to send you before you do what you are supposed to do. The close fellowship you're going to be having with the Holy Spirit enables you to walk, to function, to do whatever miracles you are supposed to do. But what are we looking for today? <laughs> we want him back. Look at the next verse. Go back to King James. And when he comes, he will convince... What is this? But yes. And when he comes, he will, con he will reprove the wall of sin... And of righteousness and of judgment. These are the three principal things Jesus actually came to do. In John 30, he said that. John 12, 30, 31. He said that. Now shall the prince of this world be judged. Is that okay? Remember that. Fine. Okay. So, here we go. Of sin because they believe not on me. So what's going to convince them of sin now? The Holy Spirit. They didn't believe in him as he was come to put an end to sin as a sacrificial lamb. They don't believe in that. They blaspheme him, all of those things. They said, in the midst of that, we're going to send the Holy Spirit who we have to bring this conviction to your life. Okay. What's the next thing? Of righteousness, because I go to my father, and what's the next thing? And you see me no more. I'm going to my Father. I'm going to the Spirit dimension. Because God is Spirit. I'm going to the Spirit. And you see me literally no more as a physical being. You won't see me anymore. Are you seeing this? That is only when the Holy Spirit comes. This is where, as we're going to see much later, where when you sin against the Holy Spirit, then you have no means. Because no conviction... You can't go to a place of righteousness. And what's the next thing that happens? Verse number 11 says, Of judgment because well, the prince of this world is judged. The ability to deal with the prince of this world is when the Holy Spirit comes. These are the three major things, primary things that Jesus came to do. And so when you reject him in that context, like we're going to see much later, you reject him as a being, you don't believe in what he has come to do, fine. He said, no problem. You sin against the Son, no problem. But then, if you sin against the Holy Spirit, it's like trying to say, there is no other provision for you to come back to God. You must go through the Holy Spirit. He's the only one that can bring you back 
to God. Because when I came, you rejected me. Now the Holy Spirit has come. So if you reject the Holy Spirit, there's no way you can come back to God. That's what he's just talking about. But what about if you accept the Holy Spirit? What happens? Oh, come on. What happens if you do? You come back to God. Now, have you read the scripture that says, As the name of Jesus, all news must bow, all tongues must confess that Jesus is Lord. How are they going to confess that Jesus is Lord? Except the Holy Spirit convince them that Jesus is Lord. For no man can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you a summary of what we're dealing with. So at the end of the day, <laughs> if you take time to study scriptures, there is nothing like unpardonable sin. Because everybody is going to, you, through the Holy Spirit, call on the name of the Lord. And once you call on the name of the Lord, all name must bow. That means you are bowing to him as the Lord of Lords and what? The King of Kings. So, it is only as you reject the Holy Spirit that you can come back to God. Now we'll come to that anyway. So, in that Hebrew 6, it talks about those who have tasted of the Holy Gift. In other words, have received the knowledge of salvation by the remission of their sin through the day spring, which is Christ now, from Ohio. Have you received Christ, the heavenly gift of God, the infinite love of God, through Christ? You know, God so loved the world, John 3, 16, that he gave his only begotten son. You have received them. So I'm talking about having tasted the good word of God, which is the bread of life. Like we find in John 6, verse 51, I'm the bread of life. You've tasted the bread of life. Amen? And thus, you've tasted the Lord that is gracious in that context. You see? Like you find in 4 Peter 2, verse number 3. And so, at this point, you are becoming full witness of the effect of your Christian religion. You've gone through all of those things. You've seen every power of God flowing in your life. You've tasted of that. So what he's trying to say is, having tasted this, it's just like the Jews who even believe at that point. So Paul is trying to say, you can't experience all of this about salvation and be going back. No more sacrifice because Christ is not going to come as a human being again to be crucified for you to repent and go back to him. Praise the Lord. So verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 6 now says, And I've tasted the good word of God. So here we have the proof of the excellence of the promises of God in sending the gospel. The gospel of God or the gospel which is the gospel of God himself, you know, is the good word of God because God is good. He sent the gospel, the good word of God, that's why he tasted the good word of God. What's the good word of God? The gospel. You've had the gospel preached to you. Praise the Lord. Keep your place. Go back to Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 1. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them sleep. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great word salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that held him? What great salvation is this? Is it for first spoken by the Lord? What was it that Jesus spoke? You can find out in Mark chapter 1, 14 to 15. When John was put in prison, he came preaching what? The message of the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of God 
is attained. That is what is called great salvation. So that salvation is greater than the first one, which was spoken by. Go back a little bit. Go back to verse 8. I mean, what, what verse? Yeah. Go back to. No. Hebrew 2. Go back to Hebrew chapter 2. And look at verse number 2 now. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, what word was that? The law. The law that was given by Moses. I'm giving to Moses because the understanding of the Hebrews is that the angels gave the law to Moses. You see that? So this is a comparison of the laws of Moses and the gospel of Jesus. And so the gospel of Jesus is called the great salvation. Is it making sense to you? So when you go back to Hebrews 6 now, you begin to see it much more clearly. When I begin to say, for those who have tasted of the gold world. Now, if you look at this thing, sorry, go back now to that Hebrew chapter 2 and look at verse number 4. Hebrews 2 verse number 4. God also, God also bearing the witness. Who are the witness? Those who were. Now, so that you can get it properly. Go to verse 3. Look at it. How shall we escape if we neglect to great salvation? Quicker the fault began to be spoken by the Lord. Mark 1, 14, 15, right? And confirm unto us by them that heard him. Who are they them? His disciples. Did you get that? Right. Look at the next thing. God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to what? His own will. That's the point. So those who have that word, they begin to flow in this dimension through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is not saying in Hebrews, you have tasted, illuminated, tasted of the good things of God. The good word, which is the good news, which is the gospel. If you should move out of it, there is no other means by which you can get those things back. Are we together? Praise the Lord. So Hebrews 6 again. Uh, so he said, we have tasted of the good word of God. That simply means genuine believers, as it were, have an appetite for the word of God. They taste it, and then their desire for it is for more abundantly tasting the word of God. You know, the more they get, the more they wish they have as true believers. Okay. So the next thing we find is have tasted good word of God and the power of the world to come. The power of the world to come. Which world? Mm. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The power, the dynamis of the world to come. I'm going to find time to explain something to us. You see, there's a big difference between power and energy. Hmm? Force. The Holy Spirit is numen in the Greek. It's not dunamis. The Holy Spirit is the force. How do I explain this? Okay, now, get this right. If you have your torchlight, you put in two batteries, for instance. That is power. Is that okay? But if you, if you own the torchlight, the energy that is coming, the light that is coming forth, you are generating it from the power. Is it making sense for you? Good. The dunamis of God is different from the force of God. God did not create the universe with his power. He created the universe with his force. The power is within him. The force goes out to create. Is it making sense? Are you with me? <laughs> so when he talks about the power of the earth to come... Something begin to minister to me. If you taste out the power of the age to come, that means you, you become a container of that power. And out of you flows force, the energy, 
which is creative that produces miracles. Those who taste it. In Hebrews 2 verse 4, God confirming his word with them signs and wonders. What is that supposed to mean? They had the power. Are you still with me? Good. But that was, that was, what was coming out of them was what? The force. The creative force. When God said, let there be light, and there was light, that was no power. That was a force. But the power was within him. Am I making sense to you? Right. So the power is like the battery. Here we have the rays of the light coming down. But the power itself is within the cables. Right? Fire is flowing through the cables and then the bulbs releases the light that is coming from the cable. You see? It's like you have the sun, you have the mega rays of the sun coming down. The ultraviolet rays of the sun coming down. That is the energy coming from the sun. The sun is the power. What touches you is the energy coming from the sun. Are we together? Right. So, that's the point. So, you say you have tasted of the power of the world to come. That is the energy. I mean, the power, the source of the age to come. Now, we have to understand this here again. The power of the world to come. We're talking about the flow of the miracles that will be wrought. For instance, let me show you something. The world to come actually, can we take this from maybe the New King James? Because that word, world to come, good. Look at this. And we tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Not wall as if another wall. No, he speaks about age. So you see now, when Jesus was alive, there was an age. And essentially that was the age of the law. Because he was born under the law. Is that okay? So now, when he went to the cross and released the Holy Spirit, another age came into being, right from the day of Pentecost. Are we still here? So right from the day of Pentecost, we went to another age. So now you can understand when Jesus spoke to the disciples, I think in Mark, I mean the book of Matthew, chapter 19, and when Peter went to him and he said, We will have followed you. We have left husband, wife, and everything and followed you. What shall be our reward? You remember that? Now what did Jesus tell them? He said in the time of regeneration, which is the age to come now, because the time of regeneration is the time of the Holy Spirit. You shall sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribe of Israel. And if you lost husband, wife, you are going to have them ordered for return. He was just talking about what will happen right from the time of Pentecost. That becomes another age. So presently we are in the age of the Holy Spirit. You can also call it the age of the church. But we are going into a greater and a deeper level of this age, moving into another age, which we can actually refer to as the age of the kingdom. Amen? Praise the Lord. So here in Hebrews 6 again, we says, the power of the age to come, here yeah, we're talking about this bit of miracles that will be going to be wrought through the gospel of Christ, you know, the gospel dispensation being the age to come in the Jewish phraseology. Now, when with Jewish people they use that word world to come, world to come. Anytime they're talking about the world to come, they're talking about what will happen after the Messiah comes in and manifests his glory. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now I, I, I'm gonna show you something. Look at Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 to 19. And then we also take Isaiah 35, 5 to 6. But Deuteronomy 18. Right, 15 to 19. The Lord that God will raise up unto thee a prophet. Now, here is Moses speaking, and this thing is very important. Here is Moses speaking um, to the children of Israel. He said, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of the brethren, like unto me, unto him shall he hearken. Now, there is something very important here that I, I always say of a minister to me. If Jesus was going to be like Moses. Hmm? It simply means one thing. 
If Moses had not died, Jesus would not have died. Because it's like unto him. Are you following what I'm saying here? Hallelujah. Look at it next in verse 16. According to all that thou desires of the Lord thy God in, in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire anymore that are thine out. And he says, And the Lord said unto thee, Unto me, thou have well spoken that which they have spoken. It is said, And I will raise them up a prophet from among them, brethren, like unto thee, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them, and all that I shall command him. And then the next thing says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he spake, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. That verse 19. So here we are talking about Jesus. Is that okay? Right. Now go with me to. The book of Isaiah, chapter 35, verse number 6. Thirty-five, verse number 6. Then shall the lame man leap as an ox, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. Never says, and the past ground shall become a pool, and the testy ground spring of water, in the habitation of dragons, which either lay shall be what grass with what reeds and rushes. Now go with me to Matthew chapter twelve. Let me show you something. Matthew twelve. Let's look at verse twenty. What verse am I going to take now? Oof. Look at verse 22. Let me see if that's be okay for us. Okay. Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil blind and dumb, and he healed him. Insomuch that the blind and the dumb both spake and saw. Next verse says, And all the people were amazed and said, There's a point. Is not this the son of David? Now, Based on those two passages we've read, the Jews believe that when the Messiah comes, he's going to perform those miracles. So the thing that will prove that this is the Messiah is the miracle that he performs. The dumb shall speak, the blind shall see, the deaf shall hear. And that is why he told those who came from John to him, Go tell him the dumb see, the blind. You understand? I'm the, I mean, the dumb speak, the blind see. Are you following what I'm saying now? Go tell John that way. Meaning, John should be able to understand from this passage of Isaiah, which all of them have always read and believed, that when the Messiah comes, he's going to do those miracles. Are you following what I'm saying now? So here he's saying that those who have tasted of the power of the age to come, meaning, these people, they've already come walking in signs and wonders and miracles because we're talking about the age of the Messiah. So if you come to that level and then you go back, that's what we're not saying now in Hebrews chapter 6. Are you with me? Are you following it? Praise the living God. Alright. So these are the signs for the promised Messiah. Uh... And if you come to that place without pretense, no doubt, his mission about Christ, empowering his people, you've tasted that, you've been illuminated, you have the knowledge of the power of the Holy Spirit, the energy of God is flowing through your life, you become a creative miracle taking place in the life of people through your ministry, and then you go back. That's what he's saying. Praise the living God. You pull out of the faith. We have received all of these things. And it's not saying it becomes what? Impossible. I know why it becomes impossible. Because one thing is this. You become a doubter and a disbeliever of even the things you've been doing before. Is that okay? You say there's nothing there. We have been there before. We've seen all those things. There's nothing special about that. There's nothing spectacular about that. 
I remember one of my friends in those days, we used to go preach together in this Adam preaching society, right? And so, he used to play the mouth organ, and I used to play this uh, local instrument, I don't know what to call it, but a bow we used to call it, you know, beat it and all that. So, we do that, do, you know, crusades, open field, and all of those things. As a matter of fact, he was there before me, in the American preaching society, so... I think about three years to his death or something like that. I can't remember now because he died about three years ago. But about three years to his death, I went to the village and I was told he's no longer a Christian. I said, what is that? I said, he's one among those people who is uh, dancing the Urube, right? Yeah. The traditional festival community is among those who goes there to do that. His name was Francis, so I went to him as Francis was. He said, David, leave those things. You know, we have done that before. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Right. So I would just say, boy, you know me now. All those things, leave those things. You know, when this man was alive, he played the mouth again. They used to record albums, you know, in those days. With Olugwa from Ivrogwa uh, in those days. They have a lot of albums in the market. You know, but say no, but you know. So this is why it becomes one of the impossible. Now you begin to doubt the Holy Spirit. There's no conviction about the Holy Spirit in your life. You don't want to see. I mean, you you just disbelieve. So it will take grace, as a matter of fact, of God again to help you come to that conviction. Because without faith, which is your belief, you can't receive any of those things. Hallelujah. Amen? Alright, so this is what he's saying. Now, this again should tell you something, that when you come to that place, uh, as touching entering the new world, or the new age that we're talking about, you are supposed to walk in this dimension of life. You are supposed to. It's not meant for the preacher alone, because Paul was not writing to preachers. He was writing to believers, who led the faith. Are you with me? And he said, you have tasted of the power of that age that was to come. You have done it before. He wasn't talking to believers. I mean, to just pastors and preachers. He was speaking to believers. That means every believer is qualified to operate in this dimension. We should be able to taste it. Hallelujah. Now, we can't be surprised, therefore... That the Jews themselves, they've come to the place where there was nothing else they were waiting for about the judgment. Because if you read the scripture, it says, The earth that received the rain that comes upon it often. Remember that? If it brings forth good fruits, it's due for heaven. But if it brings forth tons and pieces, it's meant to be burnt. What he was saying is this Jerusalem is going to be burnt. You see that? Praise the living God. So the judgment of God that came upon Jerusalem was directly connected to the rejection of the presence of the Messiah. The signs and wonders and miracles. In fact, when we come to mighty 12, you'll be able to see it. He was saying, if he said, I'm casting out uh, of devils with the spirit of Bezebub. From whom, by what spirit, are your sons casting them out? What he meant to tell them is this. Peter is your son, John is your son, all these people that will be following me, they are your children. What power are they using? Say they are your witnesses. They testify against you. Hallelujah. And you'll be able to see when we get there, this statement that was made, when I'm going to explain it so you see it, it was so damaging. Go to the next verse, let me show you something. Verse 24, we'll interpret it fully. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out devils, but by Bezebub, the prince of the devils. Why are they saying this? They wanted to discredit him. So that people will not accept him to be the Messiah. Because verse 23 gave him up as the Messiah. Now the Pharisees, their position is being shaken, their authority is being shaken, their fame is being destroyed, and so they must look for something to damage everything that Jesus was doing. They say, oh, come on, you want to follow him? No, he's using the spirit of Bezebub. By implication, he's not the Messiah. That's just what that place is talking about. But we deal with it fully. Are you with me? Alright, so let's just try a little bit and see where we can end up tonight. 
So, you see, one thing is certain. I have said this before. Do you really, when you read the book of Josephus, I think the throne of blood or something. Forgotten the exact title now. But that's to do with blood. When you read that book and see how the Jews, you remember how Hitler, if you read history, how Hitler was mentioning that none of them survived. Right? Why? See, when Pilate was to crucify Jesus, I will let this man go. What did he say? Let his blood be on us and upon our children. So they called for the judgment upon their lives. And Jesus, in Matthew 23, first told them, You who do what your fathers were doing, the blood of Abel down to Zechariah was killed on the altar, shall be found in your hands. Remember that? Good. So are you surprised that they suffer the things that they suffer? Now it is part of this. The apostates went into a complete different tangent and hated Christ to the point that they rejected him and they don't want to see anything about him. And they say, you kill this man, let his blood be on us. And now the blood begins to speak. Huh? The blood begin to speak. So the Jews were everywhere. They were, they were like filth all over the world. Anywhere you see a Jew man, it's like them, they have to kill them. The blood was speaking. You can receive it for good or you receive it for judgment. That's something people need to understand. Somebody said, Pastor, what are you talking about? You do that, don't you? Why do you play the blood of Jesus on, on devils? You are pleading for judgment, isn't it? <laughs> Praise the living God. Hallelujah. Wow. So, yeah, it say you have taste of the of the power of the age to come. And like we said before, to taste means to experience. Let me show you something. Matthew 16, verse 28. When you say taste, it's not just like <laughs> it's not just like maybe you put something in your tongue. Look at it. Well, I say unto you, there be some standing here, we shall not taste of death, till they see the Son of Man come where? In his kingdom. So how do you taste death? You experience death. Am I right? Are we together? How do you taste death? So if you pass through death, that means you've tasted death. If you experience death, you've tasted death. So if you have to taste of the power of the age to come, what is that supposed to mean? You experience the power of the age to come. That's what he's talking about. That's what it means to taste. To taste is to experience. Jesus tastes death for every man. What is that supposed to mean? He experienced death for every man. So take that now to Hebrews. If you have tasted of the power of the age to come, what is that supposed to mean? You have experienced the walking, the signs and wonders and miracles of the age to come. If you go back, there is no other way to get you restored. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Look at Hebrews 2 verse number 9. Hebrews 2 verse number 9. Just show you this. I think we're about to close now. But we see Jesus was made a little lower than angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should do all taste death for every man. So how did Jesus taste death? He died. He experienced death. Are we right? Yeah. He experienced death. So, when we talk about you tasting of the power of the age to come, that means you are experiencing the flow of the miraculous in your life. You become a dynamite. And out of you come for the pneuma of God, the flow of God's spirit, the energy of God's spirit, the creative power of God's spirit flowing out of your life. And this is what God intends us to walk in, how God intends us to live our lives, that we become a house harboring the full power of God and out of all flows for all the energy of God that produces signs and wonders and miracles. And don't forget this. I am saying this book was not written to pastors. It was written to believers. 
And so if Paul is saying that the believer tasted of the power of the age to come, it simply means you too, who is a believer, you are qualified to taste of this glorious power that defines the new age, which is completely and was completely different from the age of the law. Are we together? It's our right, it's our own privilege. God intends us to test it. And I demand that today you have the mindset, the consciousness to realize that you have been called to taste of the power of that glorious age, which is the age that we are in, the age of the Holy Spirit. Such that out of you shall begin to emanate the energy flow from the power source. You don't forget the illustration I give to you. Battery is a power. But what comes out of the battery is energy. Am I right? Good. So when you talk about you having the power, it means out of you shall flow for what? The energy that is creative as God has so ordained. And I repeat this. This is not meant for the preacher. This is not meant for the bishop. This is meant for the believer in Christ. And don't you forget, as many as believe, nothing shall be what? Impossible. So position yourself to come to this place. So we are discussing what is this unpardonable sin. And I'm trying to make you see how the scriptures apply these things, I mean this word. I mean how we've been using it, how we've been teaching it, but then we need to understand it precisely what the scripture says. So like I said in the very beginning, first John chapter five tells us there's a sin unto death, there's a sin not unto death. And that is directly connected to what I said before, what the Jewish people should have been doing. You blaspheme, you are stoned to death. And so that carries over to mighty twelve. In fact, John 18 has said the same thing. Our Jesus was to be thrown overboard. And the Bible says he walked between them and vanished from the midst of them. Why were they trying to do that? Because he blasphemed. Therefore, he was qualified to die to the sin unto death. Is that okay? Alright, praise the living God. Thank you for listening to Dr. David Ogaga. We know you have been blessed by this station. You can share this message with your friends and loved ones. For more information, inquiries, and free downloads, please visit www.davidogaga.org or you can send us an email admin at gkai.net. God bless you.